Well, I invite you to take your Bible and let's turn to Galatians chapter 3. If you ask the average Joe on the street, where do you think you'll go when you die? What kind of answers do you think you'll get? I mean, most people, at least most of the people I've talked to, will emphatically say heaven. Even if they don't know what that looks like. Even if they don't really know anything about heaven. If you say, where are you going to go when you die? Some will say that they're worm food and that there isn't much hope or meaning to this life, but a lot of people will say heaven. They'll say things like, well, I do my best. I'm a good person. I'm religious. I'm pretty sure that my good outweighs the bad, and certainly God will overlook the small stuff when I get there. When you ask them why, why should God save you, those are the kinds of answers that we typically hear, are they not? Well, obviously, we all want to think the best of everyone, including ourselves. But are any of those answers truly good enough? I mean, how do people really get to heaven? And do good people get there because they're good? I mean, how much does God expect from us? And are we really that bad? I mean, that's the question. Does God overlook or withhold his judgment from those who rely on their religiosity, their moral compass, their treasury of merits, whether they've done more good than bad? Do their good deeds tip the scales? Well, let's see what the Bible has to say about that this morning here in Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 10. The Spirit says, For all who rely... On works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. The title of this morning's message is The Curse and the Cure. Because all of us, everyone who has ever lived, your grandparent and your grandparents' parents. Every single one of us has fallen under a curse. But thankfully, by becoming the curse for us, Christ has become our cure. Now before we dive into the meat of this passage, let's set the table with a quick overview of the context that brings us here. You will remember that false teachers called the Judaizers had infiltrated the churches in Galatia. And they were teaching a false gospel of works that opposed the one true gospel of faith. They were telling these bacon-loving Gentile Christians that they needed to look like Jews and they needed to act like Jews in order for justification to really take an effect in their lives, in order for them to be saved, in order for them to be reconciled before a holy and righteous judge, before a God who sits enthroned on high and ready to judge the world according to a righteous standard that no one else could live up to. They said, you have to first act like a Jew, and you have to look like a Jew. In other words, these new Christians, these new believers, they needed to be circumcised. 
They needed to obey the dietary restrictions found in the law. They had to watch what they eat. No more ham sandwiches. They needed to observe the Sabbath. And the list of requirements went on and on and on. Essentially, they were saying that your faith by itself alone is not enough. It's not enough. It's faith plus circumcision. It's faith plus ceremony. It's faith plus covenant obedience. Well, Paul hears about this and he is furious. In fact, he's so mad that he runs to his desk and immediately he sits down to write this passionate letter. Typically, the apostle would dictate his mailings to his secretary and finish it off with his own handwriting, but not this letter. Not the letter to the Galatians. He says in Galatians 6.11, See with what large letters I am writing to you, with my own hand. This letter is so important to Paul that he fires the secretary. He says, give me that pen. I am going to write this whole thing myself in big, bold, 72 font letters. Okay, this, he doesn't want anyone to miss this. He wants that little old lady in the back of the church to be able to see this and not miss a word. No offense to any sweet little old ladies we have here at the church. But this is so important to Paul. So important to Paul. He says, listen, there is only one gospel. There's only one. There aren't multiple gospels out there. And that, there is no gospel that says you need faith plus circumcision. There is no gospel that says you need faith plus covenant obedience or ceremonial cleansing or, or sacrifices offered to animals or, or anything. There is only one gospel, a gospel that is grounded by grace alone and faith alone through Christ alone, founded upon the scriptures alone and all for God's glory alone. That is the only gospel. There is no other. And this gospel is worth going to the map for. He begins by reminding them the source of his authority. It was God himself who made him an apostle of Jesus Christ. No man made him an apostle. He didn't wait to be knighted. He didn't wait for someone to give him a medal and say, you've done it. You've memorized enough Awana verses. You can now become an apostle. That is not how it, how it happened. That's not how it worked. He became an apostle because God made him one. Likewise, his gospel message that he had received and preached to them, it had not come from men. It came from God. And because there is only one gospel, he is astonished. He can't believe his ears when he hears that these people, these Galatian churches, have so quickly deserted this profound message of truth for a lie. In chapter 2, he continues to defend his apostolic authority. He even recalls the story about a time when he had to publicly rebuke Peter to his face for acting like a hypocrite. Because Peter knew the gospel better than most people, and yet he wasn't acting like it. And the purity of the gospel was on the line. Other people, good, faithful men, even Barnabas, were starting to act out of step. They were being pulled away from the truth of the gospel. And so Paul had to do something. Publicly, he had to step in. He had to confront Peter to his face. And he did so. Well, Paul then effortlessly spells out the doctrine of justification by faith alone in just one verse there in chapter 1, verse 16. Or sorry, chapter 2. 
chapter 2, verse 16. Let's look at it together. He says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Pretty clear. How is a person justified? Through faith in Jesus Christ. How is a person not justified? By doing the works of the law. Chapter 2 then concludes with a very personal testimony. And as we saw last week, chapter 3 then explodes with a series of rhetorical questions. Paul takes these Galatians back to the time that they first received the gospel. And in doing so, he transitions from his experience to theirs. He says, enough about me, let's talk about you. How did you get saved? He then provides more Old Testament scripture for support in order to help defend this gospel that has always been of faith and never anything else. Proving that it was, it was God's plan all along for the Gentiles to be saved and to be brought into the family of God through faith and faith alone. And that brings us to our text this morning. Starting in verse 10, I'm sure that there are many ways to faithfully divide this passage. And honestly, I had a, a bit of a hard time deciding initially what to do with it. But in the end, I decided to simply relax and follow the flow of the argument as it's presented here in the text. Paul is essentially arguing for the same thing that he has been arguing for all along. And that is the one true gospel of justification by faith and by faith alone. He has shared his testimony, reminded the Galatians of their experience, and and he's even appealed to Scripture all along. Well, now he drives the nail deeper, and he starts hitting them hard with a series of Old Testament texts. He does this by providing four reasons to reject the law and cling to the cross of Christ. Four reasons to reject the law and cling to the cross of Christ. These are four compelling arguments that we see here in this text. Four compelling arguments with four Old Testament quotes to back up each and every claim. So there's our outline. Four reasons to reject the law for salvation and cling to the cross of Christ. The first three are negative assertions that relate to our obedience to the law. And then the final reason is a positive declaration of the gospel itself. And this pattern shouldn't surprise any of us. I mean, after all, the gospel is good news, but you can't grab onto the good news until you've wrapped your arms around the bad news right? I mean, what is good news if it exists in a vacuum of perpetual sunshine and rainbows? It's not very good, is it? Even, even sweet things lose their sweetness over time. We need bad news in order, to, in order to really appreciate and understand the good. And so that's what, that's what Paul does here. He presents the bad so we can come to grips with the good. So let's dive into the first point of Paul's outline here. Why should we reject the law as a means for salvation? Well, first of all, the law curses us. The law curses us. Look at verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, before we go too far, we need to define this word, cursed. 
biblically. What does it mean? We just had Halloween a couple of weeks ago. And for the last month or so, spells, curses, and magic have become common themes for our culture. So with that fresh in our minds, it becomes easy for us to quickly pass over a term like this and assume that we automatically know what Paul is talking about. I mean, obviously we know what a curse is, right? We've all seen television shows or read books when we were children. I mean, we understand what a curse is, right? But what does it really mean when we read that here in the Bible, that the law curses? I mean, that all who rely on their obedience to the law are under a curse. What does it really mean? Well, it does not refer to a spiritual hex or bad luck or a string of unfortunate circumstances. Rather, the word curse is frequently used all throughout the Old Testament to refer to one thing and one thing only, and that is God's judgment. God's judgment. And that is exactly what Paul calls upon here. That's why he uses this Old Testament text to prove his point. He says, For it is written, Cursed or judged be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, God's judgment will fall upon everyone who fails to live up to his righteous standard. Now, you might be tempted to say, wait a minute, Hans, I'm not Jewish. I haven't been taught the law since birth. I, I, don't, I don't think this law business really applies to me. I mean, how am I to be held accountable to something I've never known anything about? Well, that's where, that's where you're wrong. And I hate to be the one to say that this morning, but you're wrong if you believe that this has nothing to do with you. Romans 2, 14 and 15 tells us that even if we do not have the law, even if we were born Gentiles and not Jews, apart from the law, apart from God's truth and his special revelation since birth, even if we don't have that, we do have a conscience. And because of that, the work of the law has been written on our hearts. And we condemn ourselves every time we violate that conscience. You see, God's moral standard, it touches every aspect of human life. And I'm guessing that we're all humans here this morning, right? We don't have any aliens from outer space, okay? No hands, good. But then all of us, every single one of us, every human being here, the perfect righteous standard of a holy, never sinned once almighty creator God affects you. It affects you. It curses you. And it judges you. The book of the law mentioned here in our text that was given to ancient Israel, all that does is just spell it out for us. That's all it does. It just gives word to that reality. It helps communicate the unreachable righteousness of God himself in bottom shelf terms so that we can wrap our puny little minds around it. So that we can begin to understand just how holy God is just how transcendent he is and how small we are and how we fall so infinitely short of his goodness, his grace, his righteousness, his power, his majesty, everything that he is. You see, when the Israelites crossed the Jordan River and entered into the Promised Land, the entire nation gathered on the sides of these two mountains, okay? Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. All right, this, this is how... This is how this judgment, this curse, is represented in the book of the law. And we're told exactly what happened here in this setting in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Half of the people, six tribes were on one side, and the other six were on the other side, facing each other. Now, they're called Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, but 
they're not mountains like what we have here, okay? They're more like graceful hills, all right? They're more like the mountains we would maybe have in southern Indiana, not the mountains that we have out here in the Pacific Northwest. Well, they would stand on either side of these hills, six tribes over here, six tribes over there. And the Mount Gerizim side gave the blessings, Mount Ebal gave the curses. Interestingly enough, the Bible fails to mention the blessings. We don't have those recorded for us in the Bible. They aren't there. We don't even know exactly what they were. But we do have the curses. Isn't that interesting? The curses have been written down and preserved for our benefit. Twelve curses were given. And all the people shouted amen after each one. Well, the twelfth and final curse that acts as a sort of summary blanket that covers everything written in the law. There in Deuteronomy 27:26, he declares, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. Paul uses this verse to support his claim that all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Now, that phrase, the works of the law, this is not new to this little letter. In fact, it should already ring a little familiar in our ears because we've looked at it even this morning. Paul used it repeatedly over and over again in one verse, Galatians 2.16. And again, here in chapter 3 in verses 2 and 5. And every time that phrase appears, Paul's point remains the same, that justification is not the result of lawful obedience. And this stands in direct opposition to the uninspired teachings of Judaism. According to the Habat, chapter 1, verse 2 of the Mishnah, there they, they say that by three things is the world sustained, by the law, by the temple service, and by deeds of loving kindness. Notice that nothing is said there for the God of this world in whom Abraham believed and it was counted for him as righteousness. Likewise, the Habat, chapter 6, verse 7, says, Great is the law, for it gives life to them that practice it, both in this world and in the world to come. You know, these extra-biblical passages and others like them are likely what fueled the Judaizers in their zeal for justification by obedience rather than faith. But friends, again, Paul cannot emphasize it enough that all of Scripture, all of the true inspired words of God himself in the Old Testament and in the New, they all point to just one gospel, a gospel that is grounded in faith and faith alone. You will either believe this gospel of imputed righteousness and live by faith, or not. There is no middle ground. Because if you rely on anything other than faith for your salvation, guess what? According to this book, you fall under a curse. You are cursed by the very law that you are trying to obey. You will be condemned by the very thing that you think is going to save you. How awful is that? Well, as much as I hate to say it, you don't have to be a Judaizer to fall short of saving faith. You don't have to die on the hill of circumcision to fool yourself into thinking that you're okay when you're not. All you have to do is trust in something else. Whether it's your performance, 
your church attendance, your own holiness, even your own obedience to be saved. Listen, this is really important, and I hope you get this. As soon as you start believing in yourself, you stop believing in Christ. I hope you get that. As soon as you start believing in yourself, you stop believing in Christ. Why should we reject the law as a means for salvation? Because the law curses us, and you cannot have it both ways. None of us can. You will either live by faith, or you will die trying to save yourself. Those are the only two options we have. Also, notice that the Scriptures refer to the law here as a single unit. It's called the book of the law. And it's called that because the whole thing fits together, and it must be taken as a unit, as a whole. God does not allow us to treat his law like a collection of suggestions. He doesn't allow us to pick out a few good rules. And he he doesn't give us the liberty to hold on to the parts that we like and disregard the rest. No, every part of the law, every part of it joins together to form a collective whole. And why is that important? Because anyone who does not do everything, absolutely everything, that the Old Testament, Old Covenant law says you have to do, anyone who fails at just one small part of it is guilty of breaking all of it. If you break the law, guess what? According to the law, you are cursed. You are cursed. No take-backs, no do-overs. You are cursed and you fall under God's terrifying judgment. Who does this apply to? Everyone. It applies to everyone. James 2.10 For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And I think I can honestly, truthfully go out on a limb and say this, that's all of us. Every single one of us. When it comes to right and wrong, God does not grade on a curve. Too often we act like the Christian who took so much pride in his own spiritual growth. So two men met for dinner one night. And the first man said, I am so spiritually mature. In fact, I'm so spiritually mature that I haven't sinned once for the last 20 years. Really? Yeah, for 20 years I've never sinned. I've I've arrived. I've gotten to a point. I've plateaued in my Christian life and I've, I've trusted the Lord for everything. I've been obedient. I've been faithful. I've not sinned, not once for the last 20 years. Well, this shocked his friend so much that he didn't even know how to respond. But while he was sitting there thinking about what to say, a clumsy waitress lost her balance and spilled soup all over the first man's shirt. You can guess what happened. He lost it. He jumped out of his seat screaming and cursing and putting that poor girl into her place. And then all of a sudden, the other man who was sitting there, he knew what to say. He simply replied, well, I guess your streak is over. (laughs) Friends, all we have to do is break the law once. In our past, in our future, right now, all we have to do is break the law once to become cosmic criminals, to deserve the divine wrath of God. 
And when we break part of the law, we break all of the law. And any failure on our part, no matter how small, makes us deserving of divine judgment. For it is written, Cursed be everyone, everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. This is Paul's first negative assertion. This is bad news, is it not, folks? This is bad news for all of us. Point number one, the law curses us. Number two, why should we reject the law as a means for salvation? Because the law condemns us. The law condemns us. Look at verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. I love the way that Paul transitions into this point. The version that I like to preach from, the ESV says, now it is evident that. But I really like how the Holman Christian Standard puts it. I I believe that that version captures it well when it says, now it is clear that. It is clear. In other words, this is an obvious observation. I I mean, the kids in the nursery should be able to figure this one out. I mean, mean, it, it shouldn't surprise anyone, any of us here, that the law cannot justify those it curses. And if the law cannot bless those it curses, then the law has the power to only do one thing, and that is condemn. That's all that the law can do here. It is not enough to simply do our best or to kind of sort of live by God's principles. Every command requires active obedience. And like the man in the restaurant, we all fall short. Deuteronomy 28.15 says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I commanded you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. If you don't do absolutely everything to a T that I have told you today to do, then guess what? Every single curse will come upon you and overtake you. I mean, that's a scary way of saying that the law demands perfection. Unfortunately, that's an order that none of us can fill. I mean, if we could keep the law, we would be justified by the law, but we can't, so we won't. As one commentator writes, the principle of the law is living by doing. The problem with the law is that we cannot live up to it. The Scripture makes it perfectly clear that no one is completely righteous, except for Jesus himself. No one, not even one. I mean, think of the noblest, kindest, godliest, most self-controlled person you have ever met. And now hold them up to the perfect righteous standard that God has presented here in his word for us in the law. And guess what? They don't even get a passing grade. They don't even come close. They fail miserably. We all do. Martin Luther once said that when we attempt to merit grace by our works, we are simply trying to placate God with our sins. Because even our best works are tainted by evil motives. We all sin and we are all guilty. Scripture is replete with this truth. If they ever make a health and wealth, feel good about yourself, prosperity study Bible if they ever come out with that monster, 
then here are a few verses you probably won't find in it. Okay? Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Or Psalm 143, 2. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Or 1 Kings 8.46, it carries this parenthetical statement right there in the middle of it. He says, for there is no one who does not sin. Or Proverbs 20, verse 9, begs the question, who can say I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. Who can say that? Can anyone say that? Or consider Ecclesiastes 7.20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Or perhaps the clearest statement of guilt in the whole Bible. Romans 3.23, we all know it well. How does it go? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. These are just a few of the many passages that declare that we are all guilty, every last one of us. The law that reveals God's righteous standard does not justify us, folks. It condemns us. And to support this truth, Paul quotes from a very familiar Old Testament verse, Habakkuk 2.4, The righteous shall live by what? Faith. Paul quotes this verse again in his letter to the Romans to show that God has always saved sinners on the basis of faith. The writer of Hebrews also uses this verse to demonstrate that saving faith does not quit but endures to the end. Because saving faith is not a one-time thing. It's a way of life. Uh, remember Galatians 2.20? That mountaintop of a verse? That passage here in our Bibles that just screams above the rest where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, right now, here, in this body, before I go home to be with the Lord, this life, right here, that I now live I live by faith in the Son of God. It should be clear to us that those who are justified by faith live by faith. But why does Paul decide to quote this verse here in Galatians 3? How does Habakkuk 2, 4 help prove that no one is saved by the law? Well, Paul is simply pointing out that when the Old Testament talks about justification, when it talks about salvation... It doesn't even mention the law at all. Notice that nothing is said here about circumcision, dietary restrictions, the Sabbath, or dishonoring your parents, wanting something you shouldn't, or leading a blind person into traffic. None of that is here. None of it's mentioned here, but what is mentioned in this verse? When the Old Testament talks about salvation, when it talks about being justified before a holy God, what is mentioned here? Faith. The righteous do not live by the law. They do not live by self-reliance, a likable attitude, a healthy work ethic, an empathetic disposition, or anything other than faith. The righteous live by faith. Those who are justified live by faith. Those who have been declared righteous by God apart from the law live by faith. Meaning that everyone else who is not justified by faith, everyone else is what? Condemned. 
They're condemned because the law condemns us. That's bad news point number two. But we're not out of the woods yet. Paul has reminded us with scriptural support that the law curses us and the law condemns us. And as if that's not enough to ruin a Judaizer's day, he has one more negative truth concerning the law's inability to save. Why should we reject the law as a means for salvation? Number three, because the law conflicts us. The law conflicts us. Look at verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Paul's point here is brief, so we won't spend too much time on it, but having established that justification and faith go hand in hand, Paul is now saying that the law has nothing in common with the stuff that actually saves. In this corner, you have the law of Moses. And in that corner, you have the true gospel of saving faith. And when it comes to salvation, these two are not friends. These two are diametrically opposed to each other. They are rivals. They clash. They contrast with each other. And they cause a conflict within us. They both serve a purpose. They both bring a man to a point of salvation. But you cannot have one without the other and in the sense that you have to have the law to condemn your conscience to bring you to a point of saving faith, but you cannot rely solely on that, and you cannot rely on a faith that has no foundation whatsoever and expect to be justified before a holy God. You have to choose one or the other in the end. If you rely on both for salvation, you're going you're gonna to run into trouble. This whole time, Paul has been saying, who, you're gonna, who are you going to choose? Are you going to choose to rely on the law for salvation and the law alone, or are you going to choose to rely on, the faith, on, on faith in Jesus Christ for salvation and faith alone? What's it going to be? He's been telling us this whole time to buy the t-shirt and all the fan gear for faith because you can't cheer for both teams. It has to be one or the other. You're either a Judaizer or you're a Christian. Much like how you can't cheer for the Red Sox and the Yankees at the same time. You just can't. It has to be one or the other. You're either saved by obedience and hard work, or you're saved by faith in the Son of God. I mean, don't forget, you'll either live by faith, or you will die trying to save yourself. Those are your two options. And you have to choose. Because faith and works... They're like a man who has one foot on the dock and one foot on the boat. When the engine fires and the boat begins to move, that man has a choice to make. At least if he doesn't want to end up in the water. He has to choose which way he wants to go. And he has to choose quickly. Because it becomes impossible for any of us to remain planted on both. And that's the point that he's trying to make. They both serve a purpose. They are both in and of themselves good. One represents the righteous standard of God that none of us can live up to. And the other represents the glorious grace of God that he has provided a way for us to be made righteous before him. We need both, but we can't live on both. And we can't rely on both for our salvation. We have to choose. We can't stand our ground with one foot on the law and the other foot on faith. We just can't do it. To strengthen this point, Paul cites Leviticus 18.5. 
He says, the one who does them shall live by them. Quoted in context, the whole verse reads, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. In other words, if you do them, you will live. If you don't do them, you'll die. And it should be obvious by now that no one does them perfectly. So in the end, the result is death, not life. Paul has already told us in verse 10 that no one can keep all of the law. So salvation cannot be found by the law, just condemnation, death, and judgment. That is bad news for anyone who says you must do X, Y, and Z in order to be saved. Under the law, we stand cursed. Under the law, we fall condemned. Under the law, we are pulled away on a quest for empty achievement and unobtainable glory. As Philip Graham Ryken writes, the problem with the law then is not the law. The problem with the law is our sin. Since we cannot keep the law, the law cannot bless us. All it can do is curse us, placing us under the condemnation of divine wrath. Wouldn't it be depressing if Paul ended the letter there? I mean, we so desperately need a Savior. We so desperately need someone who could fulfill this law, who could take the the wrath and the punishment in our place. And so in a fit of excitement, Paul explodes into not just good news, but the best news that there is here. Yes, the law curses us. Yes, the law condemns us. Yes, the law conflicts us. But finally, like a shaft of light that pierces the clouds, we see that Christ is the cure. Christ is the cure. Look at verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. This news is so good. You'll notice here that Paul doesn't even pause for a well-placed adversative conjunction. He doesn't write, But Christ has redeemed us. He doesn't say, however, Christ has redeemed us. Instead, he just simply explodes with the word Christ. He says, Christ. Christ has redeemed us. At this point, he can barely contain himself. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. This word redeemed, it literally means to buy out of a marketplace, meaning to secure the deliverance of or to liberate. It was often used when someone would buy a slave's freedom in the ancient world. And that is exactly what we once were before we were redeemed by Christ. We were slaves to sin, held captive by the evil one. And so Christ, by way of the cross, entered into the world's slave market and paid the ultimate price for our freedom. And typically, back then, when a slave was purchased to be set free, the ransom price was paid to the highest bidder. And friends, the price for our redemption couldn't possibly be higher than the lifeblood of our God and King, the Lord Jesus Christ. According to Isaiah, he was beaten so badly he didn't even resemble a man while he stood there on the cross. But beyond that, God poured out his own divine wrath for the full penalty of our sins upon him. That was the cup that Jesus spoke of in the garden. The full judgment of God. The righteous curse for sin. Paul says that Jesus became the curse. 
He became the judgment for us. He became our judgment. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And I am so thankful for those two little words, for us. Because they mean substitution and pure love. He laid down His life. He redeemed us. He bought us. He purchased us. He bore our shame. He suffered the wrath of God. Our humiliation to redeem us from the curse of the law. And here again in the middle of verse 13, we have Paul's final Old Testament reference. He says, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Taken from Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. And in that particular section of the law, we see an outline of what to do with a corpse after someone has received the death penalty by being hung on a tree. Essentially, it was a shameful thing for the body of a condemned man to remain hoisted up and on display like that. But as time went on, the Old Testament practice eventually transitioned from a method of execution to simply being a sign of shame that would follow a criminal's death. And so as criminals were often stoned to death, the executioners would gather the mangled carcass and and hang them up there, put them out there publicly to send a message to everyone else. We see this happening in Numbers 25, Joshua 10, 2 Samuel 21. In each case, the corpses of those who broke God's law would serve as a warning for others. And to the Jewish people, this idea that God would allow His own Messiah to be crucified, to be hung on a tree, is an unbearable and shameful contradiction. So here's the big idea. By quoting this passage, Paul is reminding us that Jesus was not cursed because He was crucified. He was crucified because He was cursed. By taking our sins, our transgressions, our crimes upon Himself, He endured the judgments of God that we deserve. And what are the results? Look there in verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Christ Jesus took the curse, so we could take the blessing. The blessing of Abraham mentioned here is the same blessing that was referred to last week, just a few verses verses before in verse 9. That blessing is salvation through faith. And it is directly tied to the sending and the receiving of the Holy Spirit. We receive the promised Holy Spirit at salvation. And Paul reinforces that truth here. We are saved by the Spirit through faith in Christ our cure for the curse of the law. It all comes back to faith and faith alone. A faith where we give up all that we are to Christ and take on all that Christ is to ourselves. This is better than good news, folks. This is the greatest news. This is news worth sharing. This is news worth holding on to, living by, believing in, trusting in. That God would send His only Son to become a man and live in perfect obedience and die by the hands of sinful men in order to become their curse and redeem those men unto Himself. Yes, our sinless Savior died, but He refused to stay dead so that anyone who would trust in Him for salvation would share in His resurrection and live with Him forever. 
And it all goes back to that terrible tree, to that cross, to Christ's finished work. And this good news, it's for those who can't save themselves. Those who have been cursed and condemned by their, their own failure to live up to God's righteous standard. This glorious gospel that Christ himself has redeemed us from the curse by becoming the curse for us. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Well, I think it's safe to say that Paul knew the curses of the law well. What do you think? Particularly that all-encompassing summary curse he quoted in verse 10. Remember, he was a Jew of Jews and a Pharisee of Pharisees before his conversion. So he would have certainly studied the curses of Deuteronomy carefully as a child. However, there were at least five occasions when he encountered these curses in his adult life that must have stood out in his memory. According to 2 Corinthians 11.24, he had been punished by the Jews five times for preaching the gospel. And each time they had given him the standard treatment, 39 lashes with the whip, 40 minus 1. And the synagogue manuals at the time required for someone to read the curses of the law out loud while the prisoner was being whipped. So put yourself there for a moment. Can you imagine what that must have felt like for Paul? With each flog of the whip, while the word of God was being read, he had to collapse into a bitter mixture of, sor of sorrow and ironic agony. In the eyes of his oppressors, he was being cursed and beaten for breaking the law. But nothing could be further from the truth. This man had been set free from the curse of the law. The judgment that he deserved, Jesus had taken his place. Christ had become the curse for him, and his righteousness had already been accredited to Paul's account. But this was not the case for those with the whips and the law. Five times this justified man received his beatings. Five times the unjustified flogged the just. And from what we know of Paul, his heart broke for them. I mean, after all, what could be worse than a life of religious devotion and self-righteous pursuit under the curse of God? He must have reflected back to when he himself would hunt Christ's followers from town to town, when he would throw mothers and fathers into prison, because he thought it would please God for him to do so. And how Christ had redeemed him from the curse by becoming the curse for him, by taking the full force of God's judgment for him on a far more painful cross. No, his heart broke for those who cursed him, because he knew the truth that they were cursed and that he had been set free. Friends, this world has it all wrong. And like Paul, we have the truth. Most of us will probably never have to suffer for the gospel in the same way that Paul did. I mean, who knows? Someday, some of us might. But even now, without any agonizing reminders of the curse, without the blood dripping from our backs, or the sound of the whip as it breaks the wind and tears our flesh, without all of that, oh, how easily we forget. 
we forget just how bad we really are and just how great our need is for a Savior. We get comfortable. And the temptation is always there for us to rely on our accomplishments, our spiritual merit. So before we close, and before we move on from this tremendous passage of Scripture, I want to offer you two final takeaway questions. Two questions that I strongly encourage you to write down and take with you. These are good things to keep in the back of your Bible and pull out from time to time. Question number one. Ask yourself, even now, has the law condemned my conscience? Has the law condemned my conscience? Have you ever stood before the holy bar of a righteous judge without defense? As a worthless and pitiful shipwrecked sinner, without excuse and without alibi, condemned by the law, condemned by sin, condemned by failure and exhaustion. Beloved, I hope so. I hope you have. Because no work of the law, no good deed, no gesture of goodwill will ever be good enough to satisfy this curse. Listen to this charge delivered by one of the greatest preachers who ever lived. From the grave, Charles Spurgeon says, But if you say to yourself, I am good, I am righteous, I am honorable, then be warned of this. Your armor is the weaving of a spider, and it shall be broken in pieces. The garments of your righteousness are light as gossamer, and shall be blown away by the breath of the Eternal in that day, when he shall unspin all that nature has ever woven." End quote. And listen to this, though. Listen, listen to how he closes out this warning. He, he does go on to say, Take heed of this. If you have never been condemned by the law, you have never been acquitted by grace. Friends, your spiritual self-esteem, your protection against judgment, is like an armor made of spider webs. You might think that your man-made holiness is strong enough to protect you, but in the end, when judgment comes, the softest breath of God will blow your endeavors to oblivion. Let's never forget that we are, present tense, sinful men. We are wicked men, helpless men, but redeemed men. And if it were not for the glorious grace and merciful love of God and sending His Son to be our substitute, the curse would crush us forever. As the man says, if you have never been condemned by the law, you have never been acquitted by grace. Question number one, has the law condemned my conscience or do I think I'm doing all right? Question number two, do I rest in faith and faith alone? Do I rest in faith and faith alone? Listen, obeying the rules doesn't cut it. We must learn to rest in faith. The alternative is to live by experience. And too many waffle back and forth on the waves of their own experience. If they're happy today, they must be saved. If they are unhappy tomorrow, then all hope must be lost. To quote Spurgeon a final time, and I... Only quote this because he says it's far better than I ever could, but I wholeheartedly agree with it. And tell me if this resonates with you like it has with me. He once observed, Ah, miserable state of suspense. To live by feeling is a dying life. 
You do not know where you are or what you are if your feelings are to be the barometer of your spiritual condition. Isn't that true? A simple faith in Christ will enable you to remain calm, even when your feelings are the reverse of happy, to remain confident when your emotions are far from ecstatic. And he concludes by saying this, If indeed we are saved by Jesus Christ, then the foundation of our salvation does not lie within us, but in that crucified man who now reigns in glory. Friends, if you have been saved at all, your righteousness does not come from inside. It comes from without. It comes from Christ. It is, as Martin Luther referred to it, an alien righteousness. The foundation, the reality of your salvation does not lie within you, but in your Redeemer. So rest in that. Rest in faith. We have all done our part to deserve God's judgment. But thankfully, by becoming the curse for us, Christ has become the cure. And as we take this glorious message to a dying world, church, I pray that each and every one of us in this room will be known for one thing and one thing only. I pray that we will be known as those who are saved by grace, full of faith. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we are so thankful that you sent your only Son to suffer the wrath and to bear our shame, to take the cup and to drink it to the dregs. Lord, thank you. We know that it pleased you to crush him because this was your plan. We also know that there is no greater sacrifice, that there is nothing more right and just than for your son to take our place in order for us to be redeemed, for us to be bought out, for us to be taken out of the slave market of this world. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us who have been redeemed, who have been saved, I pray that we would live in faith, that we would live by faith. I pray that we would live as free men, not free to sin, not free to go off and justify our own desires, but free to live for you. I pray that that old man, those old desires, they would be crucified, that they have been crucified with you, and that the life that we now live in the body, that we would live by faith in the Son of God. Lord, teach us. Teach us what that means. Teach us day to day to rely on you and you alone, not to rely on our own efforts, not to rely on our own achievements, our own spiritual blessings even, but that we would rely on you and your achievement, your once-for-all sacrificial atonement on the cross, that sacrifice that means everything. Lord, may you receive all glory and all honor for it. And Lord, again, we are so unworthy. We all stand cursed this morning. We all fall under your righteous judgment and divine wrath. We all deserve it. And yet, for those of us who have been saved by your blood, by the blood of your Son, we have escaped judgment to rule and reign with you for eternity by trusting in that sacrifice on the cross. Thank you. 
And thank you for sending your Son to become the curse for us. Lord, for anyone here who might not be saved, for anyone here who knows in their belly, in their hearts, that what they've heard this morning does not apply to them, I pray that you would draw them. I pray that you would continue to work in them, that you would make them so incredibly uncomfortable with their sin, that they would see just how far they are from you. And I pray that you would draw them unto yourself, that you would replace their heart of stone with a heart of flesh, that you would birth them from above, that you would give them a new heart and new desires to worship you and to serve you and to live by faith. And for those of us who have been saved by faith, I pray that you would increase our faith. I pray that we would believe and trust in you wholeheartedly when it comes to all things and that we would not believe in ourselves because when we do that, Lord, we stop believing in you. Lord, thank you for this gospel. Thank you for paying it all and doing it all for us. Thank you for not just providing a way, but thank you for redeeming us in the active, definitive way that you have. Lord, you are so good, and you have been so good to us. Lord, I pray that we would be changed by these truths and that we would live in light of them, all for your glory and in your name. Amen.